even if it's a duplex, anything up to a 100 unit building, I think you need to really make sure you understand what you're doing and understand the risks you're taking and aligning yourself with the right people. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here with David Gans, who is vice president at Westmount Capital, a private lender uh, in Montreal. And uh, David is here with us today to uh, demystify uh, some of the private lending and creative financing ecosystem. Thanks for joining me, David. Of course. Thank you for having me, Terry. So just by way of introduction, before we jump into the meat and potatoes of the episode, do you want to maybe just give our listeners like a little, you know, one minute elevator pitch of who you are and how you came to do what you do? Sure. Uh, so me, uh, Westmo Capital or, or me, Dave Gans? Uh, both. both. <laughs> I mean, are you the same thing? It depends. So, um, <laughs> so I, I have been involved in real estate since I was roughly, uh, want to say like maybe 17, 18 years old. I'm now 31, but uh, I started off actually, interestingly enough, buying single family homes with my brother-in-law uh, in Hamilton, Ontario. We would, uh, he, he was out, out there with my sister uh, in Toronto. So we were buying some stuff out there and we grew a small portfolio. So I guess that's when my interest started being peaked um, in real estate. And uh, I don't own that real estate anymore. We sold it uh, when I was around 2021, but yeah, so ever since then, I worked uh, after that for a real estate developer for about four years, which I could say I learned a tremendous amount of, of uh, knowledge and information from him. And he was a wealth of knowledge and a very, very smart man. Um, and then I joined the West Farm Capital team about going back eight, nine plus minus years ago. That's like my my brief uh, my brief bio in a, in a nutshell. Westmont Capital was, was started by Robbie Peck. He used to work for Firm Capital out of Toronto, who then came to Montreal, and then he kind of drifted and started to do his own thing and opened up Westmount Capital on his uh, on his own. And so, I mean, what was that transition like? You know, going from doing some single family investing, and then like through what you did to then end up at like a private lending firm. Like, yeah. how how was that? It's uh, it's it's an interesting journey. I I'd say um, I never, not that I ever thought, but I I didn't I didn't think that I would. Be more on the finance side. When I was younger, I uh, what drew me so much to real estate was I have a big passion for construction. I don't do any construction. Uh, I mean, I own about forty apartments. So I do renovations, but I'm not myself. We have subcontractors, but I, I do have a huge passion for it, and I think that's what led me down that uh, led me down that way. But I find the financing side of things, uh, I know some people may see it as something that's boring. I see it as like a big jigsaw puddle, puzzle that you have to kind of put the pieces together and no deal is similar whatsoever. I don't find it cookie cutter at all. You know, there's a lot of things involved. There's uh, personalities, there's uh, the profile, the site. I mean, I get a lot, I get a, I get calls every day saying, you know, what, what are your rates? Uh, what do you charge? What's your leverage? And my response to somebody on the phone who I've never done business with is the same exact thing. I said, I'm not going to start telling you, uh, giving you a quote. I'll give you a range, but I'm not going to give you a quote or tell you how aggressive I could be because every single deal that I see, even if it's two neighboring buildings, they may be a completely different deal. So um, that's when, that's what I find most interesting and uh, and exciting about, about what we do here. And, uh, you know, dealing with people and seeing, understanding how they see it and 
you know, their numbers and maybe are they too aggressive? Are they too conservative? And picking apart a bit their their budget uh, and their business plans, and working with them to uh, to come to something that we could both work on together. Cool. So tell me, I I wanted to do like a show today to kind of demystify some of the you know ideas or misconceptions that um you know start investors starting out have about private lending and about creative financing in general. So I want to start with just like a super simple question that I. Uh, people throw at me all the time, usually beginners, because they've heard this whole work like creative financing term and they've heard, you know, balance of sale and private lending uh, or like loading your credit cards, like all of these different strategies to be able to do a deal with a maximum amount of leverage. And there seems to be this kind of a myth abounding that it's going to end up costing you less money somehow. If you have, you know, don't put any of your own money into a deal and you're all leveraged, somehow it's going to magically allow you to to do a deal. Could you maybe kind of just unpack that a little bit and, um, you know, demystify that for people? Like maybe what are the different kinds of creative finance and why is it not a magical wand that you can just wave over a transaction to <laughs> create uh, money? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I, I think there's a lot of uh, people who like the idea, the concept, the idea of, uh, there, there's, there's two things. I'll, I'll start by saying that um, before I even get into that, I have a lot of friends who are not in real estate who are very, very smart people, who are doctors, lawyers, accountants, uh, all types of people. I think there's a bit of a um, misconception about real estate. I think people think, oh, you know, real estate creates uh, always equals great wealth and and whatnot. I, I think that that could be the case, and uh, and whatnot, but. There's also a tremendous amount of risk associated with uh, with real estate, and I think that that's some people don't really see that. And I think that the first thing before you even look at any transaction, any deal, is you need to like tell yourself, okay, can I stomach losing money, uh, ruining my reputation, or or a wide variety of things? Because there are so many different moving parts when you do a deal: financing, renovations, city permits, tenants, building issues, contingency funds. Uh, I think it's really important to like really understand it. So I, I, I say that because I do have people calling me and saying, hey, you know, I'm buying a building for a million dollars. Uh, it's appraised for $2 million. Uh, can you give me 100% financing? Our philosophy here, and, and also something that I definitely agree with, is that I think that everyone needs to have skin in the game. Um, I think if you don't have any skin in the game, you just inherently care less. And I think it's normal. If your money is not on the line, I think that it's normal to not care as much in, in, in most cases. So get, getting back to the private lending side, I'd say we, we are not necessarily more aggressive than the banks. I think that's also a bit of a misconception. We are in times more aggressive. We, you know, sometimes we could do 80%, sometimes we do 85%, but that's not the baseline. I think the baseline is more on the conventional leverage side, which is 75% loan to cost, you know, for a wide variety of, of, of reasons. Where where we uh, where we uh, kind of thrive is our speed and our flexibility. So I, I myself have done many transactions with banks for me personally for the buildings I own, and they're very long, drawn out processes. Which which understandably so, you're, you're dealing with institutional lenders who have credit committees and well, you, there's an account manager and there's a lot of people working together. Um, here at Westfront Capital, we're we're only two people. We have a a great administration staff, but um, where are the credit committees? So you pick up the phone, you're speaking to me, I'm the underwriter, the credit committee, the 
the funding guy. It's it's one person. It's one two people. So I, I think what's what's nice to work with a private lender is that we're very flexible. So someone may call us and say, "Hey, I'm buying a building that's fifty percent vacant. The bank's only going to give me fifty percent loan leverage. Uh, I don't have that type of money to put up. Could you do seventy five percent? I'm still going to bring skin in the game, but we're we're basically going to build it in a way that we see it as a, as a win win. So uh, they put less equity in because the building may be vacant and not having too much cash flow. And we see it as that, oh, they're buying the building really well and they're actually going to be able to optimize it much faster. So that's like, I'd say how we're able to, to, uh, to help. But I, I think it's important to understand that we, we don't accept every uh, deal that comes across our table. We are extremely particular about the type of transactions we do, who are the borrowers, their liquidity positions, you know, if there's a cost overrun, could they afford to inject money to to finish the project? Um, we deal with that on a regular basis with our, reno- our renovation loans. You know, just this week, we, we were visiting a site of an existing client who's doing a project, and he's quite over budget. Nothing to do with his uh, his 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 um, his level of uh, understanding or, or 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 analytical. It's more when he op- he opened up walls and he found things that he didn't expect, and so. Um, to his credit, he's taking responsibility and we're saying, listen, we can't continue to advance the money until you kind of, uh, brought things back up to the baseline of where the building was before, uh, when we, we funded the deal with, with a certain understanding. So I know I'm kind of talking a lot about different things, but I'd say baseline is private lenders are really great, but you have to really, uh, have done your proper due diligence and, and, and it's a short-term solution. So. There, we're not here to be there for a year or two years. We're really there for, I'm buying a building. It's, it's a very distressed asset in place, not, oh, I'm, I'm going to vacate the units or uh, there's going to be some turnover or I need to do major repairs. No, it's like I'm buying the building distressed. So I know that from day one, I'm going to need more someone to be a bit more aggressive, a bit more understanding. Maybe I want to ask you for every single document in the book, uh, which which helps people a lot. So I think that that's where we thrive and uh, being able to like offer our clients something that they're, they they see as a win-win. So paying a bit more interest, but for a much shorter amount of time, and they could go much faster than they would with a conventional bank and then go to their refinancing as soon as possible to move on to the next project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, if you permit me, I'm going to just kind of like recap some of what you said for our listeners, sure, because I feel like you know, I knew, know the kind of question, like where the questions come from that I get around this topic. So I think very often, like people, when they start hearing about creative financing and, you know, these solutions to do deals is today in the real estate market, like realistically in Montreal, you need a fair amount of money. Like if you're looking at a project that like, let's just pull a number out of that and say a million dollars. Like if someone's willing to lend you 75% of that deal, like there needs to be 250K cash. Somewhere. For sure. That is not something that like most people when they're thinking of starting out as real estate investors have access to in their own bank account. So, you know, in that case, they're thinking about what can I do to maybe get create some additional leverage? And then what is not necessarily clear to them, I think, is exactly where that money comes from and what the terms are on it. So there's the 75 percent financing of which you can go to the bank. You can go see David as you just outlined your the maybe your competitive edge is that the bank is going to ask for every single document they're going to have very specific risk tolerance when it comes to vacant units in the state of the property and maybe as you said if someone's looking at buying a distressed property that the bank wouldn't finance or they would finance like 
you know, maybe 50% leverage, you guys are able to go faster um, and maybe to even provide financing for projects that it would not be possible to finance conventionally because the bank is too scared of vacant units. So, so, you know, I think that's, that's kind of like the role of private lending, but just to be clear for our listeners, you're going to be risk and interest kind of work at cross purposes, right? So the higher the risk, the higher the interest, the lower the risk, the lower the interest. And so you have to be aware that if you're trying to do something that's risky, which is distressed property, vacant units, poor state, very high leverage, those are all things that you're going to pay a risk premium for. And so it's not like there's somehow magical money floating around out there. It's that in order to do something in a, in a quick and maybe unconventional way, you're going to have to pay a premium. And, you know, like, for example, also one of the things is if you take a private loan or you take some kind of a balance of sale, very often, I mean, I believe you guys do interest only for the, the period of the loan. There's no capital. The capital is reimbursed at the end. So that's also important to understand that if you're borrowing for, you know, six months or a year or whatever time it's going to take you to quickly do the manipulation to bring the property to a state where the bank is willing to take it on. During that period, I'm not I'm not sure if you guys like, you know, have a, a bulk interest payment at the end or if they have interest payments to make, but you're actually not reimbursing capital. You're using that money for a certain period of time and then paying maybe a balloon interest paying that at the end. And so it's also not the same as like making a mortgage payment every month where part of it is interest, part of it is capital. So I don't know if you could maybe just kind of like speak to that a little bit. Like how do your how are your repayment terms done usually? So yeah, so so with us it is interest only. It's always payable monthly. Um we don't we don't accrue anything. Um also because of risk, right? I mean I mean we can't if you if we accrue interest then it just adds to the capital and it adds to our exposure. So so the payments are monthly. Uh they're just there is no capital payments to be made. It's just interest. So literally it's uh if the rate's eleven percent per annum uh, and you take a million dollars, it's like literally that. It's a million dollars times 11% per annum divided by the number of days, divided by the number of days you use the money, and that's what it is per month. Uh, the, the payments equalized over over 12. So we do sometimes do interest reserve accounts. Uh, an example of that is we're doing a transaction now where it's a fully tenanted building. It's quite a large portfolio. And uh, the income that's being generated does not uh, even come close to the to, to, to the to the interest payment per month. Now that that is a, always the case with us, but some borrowers are quite upfront with us and say, you know, I would rather that we have we provision for an interest reserve, whereby uh, we'll take fifty percent of the payments for the for the entire year upfront at the closing, and we'll we'll hold it, and then every month you just have to come up with fifty percent of the payments. So we have a, an account, interest reserve account. Every month it contributes slowly as it's slowly depleted. And then let's say we take it for 12 months, but you only use it for 10 months because you pay off the loan after 10 or eight months. Then whatever was not used is refunded back to you. Obviously, we don't keep it. But we, we have in certain cases done that, both either by request of the borrower or, or a requirement. Like an example would be if we know a, 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 an individual is buying a building fully vacant and there's no income in place, that's great. That's a great profile of project we'd like to do. We do them all the time. But, you know, it's important for our investors to know that they will be getting their interest payment every month and that the uh, that the borrower has provision to pay that interest. So what we'll do is we will build in a full interest reserve so that, for example, six, eight or 12 months, 
the interest is taken care of. So that borrower doesn't make any interest payments. It's already in the loan at closing. That makes it easier for us. It makes it easier for him to focus on what he needs to do, which is optimizing the property. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. And so another uh, question, which uh, comes up whenever one mentions private money. Um, so what happens if you run into trouble and you can't pay? Like we, I think the minute you start hearing private lending, people think loan sharks and they think, uh, okay, you know, who are these guys? Like, are they going to come and break my kneecaps or like, you know, come and sit outside my house if I don't make my payment? What, what does that actually look like in practice when somebody can't pay or does it ever happen that like, do you just do your underwriting so diligently that people always pay? Um, I, I don't think anyone could predict any, everything in life. So, uh, I, I, I'll start with that. But so to answer the question is, I think people have to understand there are many private individuals who are pri call themselves private lenders, uh, throughout Canada and specifically Quebec. I think what needs to be clear is that um, there are, in my opinion, probably a handful, two, three handfuls maximum of like very legitimate operations like ourselves, um, who I may see as competition. Um, there are a lot of small guys who who have a million dollars and lend it out to a bunch of people at really crazy, crazy high interest rates. Um, that to me is, is not really, a, that that is like a private, private lender, like a someone who maybe I wouldn't want to do business with. Like I said, we, they're probably like, five, 10, 15 maximum, I think, real private lenders in the city um, that are doing, like have a real uh, operation like ourselves, real staff, have real operation, have investors, do proper um, due diligence, a register on title, their rates are not 18, 20, 25%, which is, which is not a normal rate to me. I don't know how, how anyone can make sense of that rate. So I think it's important for people when they get involved with someone is to like ensure that that person is coming to them from a good source and ensure that uh, uh, the rate is is uh, not astronomically high because if it is, I think you may be getting involved with someone who's not uh, the right person. For us, um, we are, ex like I, I alluded to this, this earlier, we are extremely, extremely careful of who we kind of uh, lend to. I'd say the majority of, of applications that come through our door are rejected purely because of lack of liquidity, uh, lack of experience. Maybe we don't like the project. Uh, so we're extremely, very, very particular to that point where we have very, very few defaults on, on our book. Literally, I don't even think we have one, like maybe one every few years maximum. It, it's extremely, extremely rare for us. When it does happen, it is no different than uh, a bank uh, process. You know, there are uh, laws in place. Uh, basically, the, I'll sum it up very briefly where, you know, uh, we would have to register a 60 day notice for the borrower to rectify it within 60 days if they stop paying interest, uh, stop making their payments. If they can't, then we seize the rents, uh, which is uh, all by the book, uh, all per the laws in Quebec, seizing rents. And then uh, we go to court to, uh, to 
re- recover our our capital and and hopefully our our in, our interest as well that's been accumulating over the time that the interest has hasn't been paid. Mm-hmm. So that all looks like a pretty legitimate process that it would yeah. look like if you were in business with the bank. It's, it was the exact same repossession, no difference. right? 60 yeah. day, yeah, 60 day notice. It's, it's an exact same. If, if you approach a lender and, and uh, you know, I, I've heard of lenders, um, you know, some people say, well, I want to control the company. I want to have shares in the company. I, there's all these bizarre ways. To me, that's that's someone who probably has uh, uh, bad intentions. We don't we don't control any part of the company that you own. Uh, we're just like a bank. We register a lien on title. We have a mortgage on title. And if things go sideways, we, uh, through the due process, we uh, we go through the courts and do it properly. There's uh, We're not assuming any percentages of people's companies or going to their houses. That's not, that's not how we operate. We operate just like a bank. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Um, all right. So I guess in this episode, I just wanted to really like dispel some of the main myths that people have about um, creative financing and um, uh, private lending. Is there anything else that maybe you want to speak to? Like I'm thinking of, you know, those Facebook memes where you have like, this is what my mom thinks I do. This is what my friends think I do. This is what I actually do. Um is there anything, any some other kind of like misconceptions that are floating around that you would like to clear up before we log log off at this episode? I I think that's that's a really funny. Uh, I've seen those before, by the way. There there, that's really funny. You mentioned that. I I I think I kind of already uh, spoke to that earlier. Like like I said, I have a lot of very very sophisticated smart friends who think you know when you think real estate, you think big money. And but but in my my opinion, uh, I think real estate. I think of uh, massive risk. And so I think that's um, something that I, I hold uh, hold uh, close to me I, in the sense that um, I think people, when they uh, are going to get involved in real estate, if it's a, even if it's a duplex, anything up to a 100-unit building, I think you need to really make sure you understand what you're doing and understand the risks you're taking and aligning yourself with the right people because um, it may seem very easy to some people who are seasoned and uh, could go to sleep uh, doing these large transactions, but... Uh, my my take is that there's a, that 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 is the case, but there's also a tremendous amount of risk involved. So I think people need to uh, appreciate that as well. Yeah, and I you know I think this is something that um, you know like I know us at the club we really try to put emphasis on that, which is that you know a lot of the time real estate coaching or real estate gurus will make things seem too easy, you know, and it's like this fast talking like you know no bunny down and you're going to be a millionaire tomorrow like. That's not the reality of what this looks like on the ground, you know. And like you said, I think the being mindful of the risk factor is 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 very important. And then there's also like the learning curve because you do need a certain amount of knowledge to like underwrite deals and understand, you know, like one of the other conversations I, I end up having a lot is people who want to like flip houses. So it's like, okay, well, you know, I can buy this duplex with five percent down, and then I'm gonna flip it and sell it for you know two or three hundred k more six months from now, well, I mean, yes, for people who that's their business model and they've been doing it for a while or have a construction background, but first of all, then you're in the position of having to time the market. Do we really know what the market's going to be like six months or a year from now? We don't. And then do you also control the scope and the length of the project that if all of a sudden you have carrying costs associated with this and things go over budget or, or you can't sell for six months because X, Y, and Z reason, do you... Are you able to carry that in a way and still make money? So, yep. you know, I think I think it's important to be mindful of the fact that there are a lot of variables 
each of which has their own risk factor attached to it. Um, and that but without thinking that it's just like a really easy way to make a whole bunch of money, you got to do your due diligence. And like you said, surround yourself with good quality people who are going to alert you to some of those things if it's not part of your skill set when you get started. Yeah, I, I couldn't I can agree anymore for sure. All right. Well, David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with our listeners. Where can they reach you if they want to reach out to you? Well, thank you for having me. That's that's firstly. Uh, where can they reach? You could uh, you can email me. You can call us. We have a website, uh, wcmortgage.ca, where we have all of our information there, all of our contact information. So uh, happy to uh, happy to speak to anyone uh, who may have any further questions or inquiries for sure. Thank you. Take care. Thank you, Terry. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating, leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.